Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, the weekly Star Trek Discovery podcast. This is the episode for Season 1, Episode 5, Choose Your Pain. Hello, Sabriel. <laughs> Hello, Ken. How are you today? I am doing fantastic. It's a good morning after Star Trek, and so that's always a good day. I know, you go to bed having just watched Star Trek, and then you wake up and you watch it again. Yeah, I woke up at 6.30, made coffee, and pulled up Star Trek. I was talking to NMR Jess, who left a review on iTunes for this podcast, and she was talking about how when Next Generation was on, she would watch it Saturday night at 7 p.m. when it aired, and then she'd watch the rerun the next day, Sunday at 8 p.m. Did you used to do that? Kind of. It would For me, new episodes would air on Monday nights. And then it was reruns the rest of the week, and then they would re-air the new episode either on Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon, and I would often catch it. So you had a whole week to mull it over and then revisit it. Yeah, but I was little, so I probably didn't really mull it over other than, oh my god, that was so cool, did you see that? (laughs) And especially when we're younger, we're more inclined to engage in repetition and watch things over and over. Yes. Although, granted, when Next Generation was out, we were in our teens, so maybe growing out of that habit. But still, Star Trek is often worth watching twice. I don't know that I could do it as rapidly as you do with Discovery, though. Well, I did. I wouldn't probably do that unless I had a podcast to talk about it. <laughs> there is that. Otherwise, I would watch it later in the week. So you would watch it twice? Yeah, probably eventually. But you know what? Speaking of iTunes re- reviews... Yes, we just got another one. Yeah, we got one from Tempest Brewer, who says, oh my god, like, pulling out my heartstrings here. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> a great way to both refresh your brain on what happened in the episode before the next one airs, as well as gain new perspectives on the show. Sabriel's massive knowledge, and I might add, wonderfully beautiful and intelligent, but that was me, a base of Star Trek lore and history is invaluable to for new and old Trekkies alike. And your beauty does come across in this audio podcast. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm glad that I, somewhere in there, may have something to contribute as well. Once in a while. Sure, occasionally. I'm just here to look pretty. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're the arm candy. Oh. oh it's about time. <laughs> Sheesh. All right. Well, well, thank you, Tempest Brewer, for your kind words. And if anybody else wants yes, to add their reviews to iTunes or Stitcher or anywhere else, that'll help other people find our podcast as well. And if you want to build up my ego on here or Twitter, it's great, too. Can it be built up any further? I don't know. I need to get an extra airline seat, usually. (laughs) You're eventually going to just graduate to having the whole aisle. (laughs) Good job. A couple of things I want to mention before we get started with this week's discovery is that this was a very trek-full weekend for me because my mom and I, as I've mentioned, are re-watching The Next Generation. For me, it's a re-watch. For her, it's the first time ever. And we just watched the season three finale, which is part one of The Best of Both Worlds. Wow. Oh my god, being able to see that again for the first time, I can't imagine. I know, it was great, and to leave it on that cliffhanger, where we have the entire series on DVD. We could have watched the conclusion immediately, but I told her, no, I'm going to make you wait just like I had to wait. All summer long. <laughs> or a week or two. <laughs> 
Oh, but it was so much fun to watch that again. And part of me, when this episode is over, I want to go right into Star Trek First Contact, but there's so much other stuff that has to happen first, like Family at the beginning of Season 4, and then the episode with Hugh, and then, of course... First Contact doesn't make sense unless Data gets his emotion chip, which means watching Descent, which is another Borg episode, and then Generations. But yeah, it's just all this stuff is tied together. And I wasn't actually originally going to include any of the Borg episodes when I showed it to my mom, but she must have picked up something in the background when Dad and I were watching this 30 years ago, because at one point she asked me, when I was popping the DVD in, is today's episode going to feature the Borg? Uh And I didn't even know she knew who they were, so I'm like... Oh, you want to watch the Borg? So I started adding all these episodes to our agenda, which also meant including all the Q episodes, which I wasn't sure I was going to show her, but the Q introduces Star Trek to the Borg, so I had to include that. And it just became this spiraling out of control list of episodes we were going to watch. All of them are fantastic. So was she interested in the Borg maybe because it sounds Swedish? <laughs> Borg, 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 Borg. <laughs> The first contact reference, Ken. It's okay. Right. (laughs) Lily Sloan asks who the Borg are. Alfred Woodard. I get it. Yeah, yeah. I also watched Star Trek. I watched Conspiracy this weekend. Oh, the episode with the the symbiotes. The Bluegills were the alleged precursor to the Borg, if you've not heard that story. That's right. As far as production goes, they wanted these creatures to be a big villain, and it didn't work out that way. So then they went back to the drawing board and made the Borg. Yeah, yeah. And we never found out what happened with those things, except in the Expanded Universe novels. Right, right. Which is unfortunate, but hey, whatever. Yeah, I really like the way they brought them back in the DS9 novels, starting with the Lives of Dax anthology. But there was nothing further in the TV show, which was disappointing. I mean, there's a lot of loose ends that never get cleaned up, so hey. Right, like that Season 7 episode of TNG where the Enterprise became self-aware... Remember that? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And the episode ended with it, like, birthing something that just sort of flew off into the nothing, and they, we never saw it again. Yeah. Or Tom Paris and Janeway's lizard babies. Right. You know, speaking <laughs> of which, I really thought that Enterprise creation from TNG would show up on Voyager, that it would have traveled to the Delta Quadrant and bump into Janeway and Paris and the rest of the gang. But no. Oh, it, man. They probably would have been like, Ken, you should be on the drawing bo- or the script room here. The scriptwriter's room. <laughs> you know what? There are so many geniuses in that room, they probably thought of this, and they're like, nah. <laughs> oh, well. Or maybe they did, and it couldn't work out. Yeah. But, you know, another crossover is one I just read this weekend, which is volume two of the Star Trek Green Lantern crossover. Oh, my goodness. I didn't know about this. <laughs> yeah. So it was originally published as a series of six issues, which was collected into a trade paperback that came out last year. And then they did a sequel, which was another six issues, which was collected in a trade paperback that just came out last month. So I picked that up and read all six. Uh, basically, the DC universe with Superman and Batman, everybody, has been destroyed, but the Green Lanterns were able to escape into the Star Trek reality. So not only <laughs> is it a different reality, it's also for them like 250 years in the future. Oh my goodness. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. Like in the first crossover... Ahura gets a ring, and McCoy gets a ring, and if you haven't followed Green Lantern the last 10 years or so, it's not just Green Lanterns anymore, there's also Yellow Lanterns, Red Lanterns, etc., and each one embodies a different emotion, so, like, everybody got a ring, and except Captain Kirk, and then in this latest crossover, uh, there are more rings, and more people get rings, and it was ridiculous and predictable, but still kind of fun. <laughs> that's cool, that's cool. I full had a trekful weekend. Which is the best kind. Uh-huh. 
And it ended with us watching the latest episode of Discovery, Choose Your Pain. Shall we review the latest episode? Well, yes, but I also want to add real quickly that uh, I know uh, I've been kind of hard on the Klingon language on Discovery this week, but I don't know her relation to it. I have to go back and I will try to find the link for the show notes if I can help, if I can. But um, she describes that the Klingon language, as we see in Discovery, was intended that way. And the Klingon language was written in mind for people with heavy prosthetics. So it's more guttural and back of the throat instead of front of the mouth. And it was intended to be spoken slower. Turns out Discovery is actually getting it right. And counter to later treks, which was just trying to be cool, apparently, with how they spoke Klingon. So they really did go back to the original script for this latest interpretation of the Klingon language. Yep, yep. So I was wrong, and I can appreciate it more. Well, that, I mean, that doesn't mean you have to like what they're doing, whether or not no, it's but intentional. I, but... I gained a new appreciation for it when I learned more about it. That's fair. Klingons didn't play a huge role in this week's episode as far as subtitled text, which we've been getting a lot of lately. Yeah, I don't know. We got any except for the flashback that what happened. That's right. Actually, you know what? I think all the Klingons in this episode spoke English. Uh, but let's start at the beginning of this episode. Choose Your Pain opens with Michael Burnham having a dream that she is both, that she's in engineering and she's at the engineering console and she's in the room where the tardigrade is usually placed to interface with the navigation system. So there's like two of her and she's powering the navigation system and she's screaming out in pain, both of her. Yeah, I think this scene is mostly just to reiterate what we saw last week where she's like, I don't know about this. Yeah, because otherwise it was a very quick scene. I thought it was interesting that it reiterates that she is having an ethical quandary. She is in a dilemma regarding how to use the tardigrade. We saw them bonding in the previous episode, and she wanted to treat it kindly. And now they're manipulating it like a thing instead of a creature. And right, and, right. and nobody seems to be, at least at this point in the story, more guilt-ridden over that than she is, where she actually sees Which herself in that position. I thought it was odd, because we have all these people in engineering who see this happening and hearing it scream out when it's poked and prodded, and everyone's kind of like, eh, eh, <laughs> technology. Yeah, I would think there would be more people in engineering. The people we see in there most often are Burnham, Stamets, and Tilly. Yeah. Whereas in The Next Generation, Geordi was always in the Enterprise uh, Warp Core engineering room, but there were tons of people running around on multiple tiers around the Warp Core as well, and I just thought that really gave a good sense for how busy this place is. Yeah, it's a very different engineering setup than other shows. Engineering is always full of people walking around, pushing buttons in the background, and here you barely see anyone. I don't know if maybe the uh, the casting call just didn't turn out enough extras to populate the area. That, I mean, it's a small enough room. Or, as you suggested before, maybe it's a lab separate from main engineering. But this does seem to be engineering, so I don't know. Yeah, we haven't really gotten a technical schematic for the Discovery yet. There are, of course, no. technical manuals for other starships, but the Discovery is too new for us to really know the innards and outards. Yeah. Uh, and more to think about there, yeah. So Burnham decides to act on this guilt right away, and she brings the Doctor into the trophy room where the Tardigrade is being kept captive. Remind me the Doctor's name, is it Culver? Yep, Dr. Culver. And it turns out he is not the Chief Medical Officer. He's just a Doctor. Yeah, which I was very surprised by. I thought that Star Trek's tend to focus on the main doctor, and very often there is only one doctor and then a bunch of nurses, like Nurse Ogawa. Mm -hmm. But in Discovery, it seems like they have multiple doctors, and just like the show features or focuses on somebody who's not the captain, this show is also focusing on somebody who's not the chief medical officer. Yeah, so that's kind of neat. We're getting the, the others on the ship. 
Another thing that NMR just pointed out to me is that this is the first time we've seen a doctor in Star Trek whose color is white. But but for the most part, yeah, we don't usually see doctors wear these colors. Yeah, except maybe McCoy in the motion picture, the first Star Trek, but that was, I think, not unique to medical. I think Kirk may have also been wearing white. That was just that was uh, unique to the seventies. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was wondering, like, white is something that is very traditional in today's hospitals. It's something that shows up blood very easily, which might not be very aesthetically pleasing, but it makes it also more apparent that you're wearing dirty garb and need to change into fresh scrubs. Right, right. But very often, medical is the same color as science, and that is unusual here. Also, speaking of which, in the very first episode where Burnham's on the Discovery, we see the black badges. Have we figured out what those are yet? No, there's been no references to them since that episode. I mean, sure, they have the black alerts, but that hasn't been paralleled by an entirely new class of Starfleet officer. No, no. So I think that's one of those uh, strings that we'll get back to later. Or maybe they're just throwing stuff out there to see what sticks. Maybe, but I don't know. We've seen the get answers to things episodes later, uh, which we'll talk about later. Okay. So after the doctor says he'll do what he can to run some tests on the tardigrade, we skip over to Lorca, who's having a meeting with a whole bunch of Starfleet admirals. Actually, in person, not holographically. Yeah, they're on a starbase, and he talks about their missions, and they've done these three missions. So it says in less than three weeks. So this episode takes place at least three weeks later, roughly, but we don't know for sure from the last episode. Yeah, sounds like Discovery has really been pulling their weight and participating in the war effort to a significant degree with their ability to pop in somewhere, execute an attack, and then disappear like a ghost, all without being seen, or at least that's the goal. Here, one of the admirals, the one that we saw holographically in the previous episode, is concerned that the Discovery has been identified by the Klingons, and thus they need to cool off on their incursions for a while. Yeah, yeah. This one, I think this scene is more to build out the premise for the episode than, and kind of fill in some background information on what's been going on than a kind of deep dive. Although you did note that they say that Starfleet is working to replicate this technology with new starships being built in Jefferson, Iowa. Yeah, I, I was like, I don't know the city. I don't know the Star Trek ref- or importance. So I just went to Google Maps or Google and just looked it up. And it's a small city, but northwest of Des Moines, a little more than 4,000 people. But it, in the pre- there's no reference to this city in any other Star Trek. I, don't, I think it's maybe someone on the writing staff just thought it was a cool city or they grew up there. I don't know. Yeah, Jefferson itself has no precedent in Trek lore. Iowa, of course, does, that being where Kirk yeah. was born and raised and where in the Kelvin universe we saw the Enterprise being built. But Jefferson is about 200 miles west of Riverside, where Kirk is from. So I don't know if this is the same shipyard that the Enterprise was built in. It could be. Yeah, we, we really don't know that one. So from the lunch with the Admirals, we have a brief scene with Burnham and Tilly in the mess hall. Yeah, we see Tilly sitting down to join for lunch or something with Burnham. And she seems down and focused on something, or she's not really paying attention to anything. And Tilly sees this as her chance to be a friend and says, that's it. We're going to have lunch right now. I mean, you're going to tell me what's wrong. I thought this was a cool little scene where she's like, tries to be, she sees others have these kind of conversations like, all right, we're going to talk about our feelings. Well, she doesn't know quite know how to do it. And so she awkwardly says, we're going to have lunch when they're already eating lunch. But lunch to her apparently entails more than just food. It's an entire ritual that includes certain kinds of conversation. They're not just going to sit there and eat. They're going to talk. Yeah. Yeah, I got a kick out of that. And then Burnham tells what's on her mind. She's focused on the tardigrade and what they're hurting and all. Tilly's like, you're stressed. She's like, (laughs) Burnham doesn't even respond to that. But it seems like Tilly's just trying to 
I've heard a few other people say this. Yeah, you're stressed. And then Michael adds that uh, she's not used to having so much free time and she's uh, she's kind of lost in her thoughts and feelings. Tilly's like, really? I love feeling feelings. <laughs> and so that's kind of where the seat ends, but... I am starting to cotton to your observation of last week that they are becoming friends. At first, I thought it was just that Burnham was tolerating her roommate, who snores, by the way. Yes, we saw that. (laughs) But they really do seem to be warming up to each other. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, warming up to each other. And I think that's largely driven by Tilly. I don't really see Burnham making a lot of efforts, but she is responsive to Tilly's efforts. Oh, you're absolutely right. At least so far that we've seen on screen anyway. Right. Who knows what happened in the last three weeks? Right, right. <laughs> and so from there, we go back to Lorca having a meeting now. It's one-on-one with the other Admiral. And she calls into question Lorca's decision to conscript Burnham, who has been Starfleet's only mutineer. Apparently, during wartime, you can conscript whoever, whomever you want, pretty much. And she sees this as a... It hurts the morale of Starfleet. And oh, she also finally answers our line. She also says, The organization's only convicted mutineer is viewed by many, justifiably or not, as the cause of our conflict with the Klingons. I was so glad she added that line, because it conveys that we're not the only ones who are confused about why this war is happening. Right. It was intentional. It's not, a, it's not just us who are confused. I like that. Right. And she also mentions that conscripting Burnham gives Starfleet officers another reason to distrust Lorca implying that there is an initial reason, which we have not previously been alluded to. Right, yeah, so we kind of get some allusion to the background of Lorca here. I was like, ooh, when I heard that. (laughs) (laughs) Which will at least partly be answered later in the episode, which I was not expecting. I felt like this show tends to leave threads dangling for multiple episodes, but this seems to be a foundation laid and then built upon all within one episode. Yeah, that was cool. Oh, also in this scene, right away it opens with Lorca... Zoom in on Lorca's eye. Ew. And him shoving something, uh, like almost like a pinprick into it. <laughs> it was very disconcerting to many people online. <laughs> yeah, you know, I should have run that scene past my colleagues because I work alongside many ophthalmologists. And I'd like to know if there is any such self-administered medication prescribed nowadays. Yeah, I, I don't know. I know I've had a little puff of thing, air in my eye before. Right, right. But you're probably not doing that to yourself, though. Right, right. Like, I don't think anybody has just sent you home with a syringe and say, here, stab this in your eye every couple of days. This is true. This is true. At least not to me. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I bring this up because this scene is important because the Admiral, whose name we find out, his first name is Katrina. I think we found her last name in a previous episode, but I don't recall. But anyway, her, she comes in and she says, why don't you get this fixed? Previously, he said it's not repairable. He told Burnham that. Uh, yeah, it's here that he doesn't trust doctors. She goes, cut the crap, Gabriel. Like, like... This is a repairable condition, but he apparently this tells us that he keeps the injury for some reason, which is it also addressed later. So, do you think he does or does not trust doctors? I think that might be just a cover up. I think he does. He may not care. He just he keeps this pain. He chooses this pain. Oh, there's there's the reference to the. <laughs> ah, he chooses this pain. I get it. Yep, this is the secret hidden meaning behind Ha-ha. our title. Besides, what comes up soon. And we also learn that that through the dialogue between Lorca and Vice Admiral Katrina Cornwell, that they're not just fellow officers, they are old friends. Yes, yes, they've known each other for a while. 
the context, we don't know. So finally, Lorca is done with his meeting with the admirals. He gets in a shuttle, and he, very similar to the shuttle in which Burnham was transported to the Discovery, and he's being chauffeured, presumably, back to Discovery. We don't know the distance between the Starbase and the Discovery ship. And he gets intercepted by the Klingons and abducted with the pilot being <laughs> slaughtered. Oh yeah, he was slaughtered in a big way. And this scene is also a huge Star Trek trope. Is it? You never go on conferences in a shuttlecraft, because you'll get captured. <laughs> <laughs> happened to Jordy, I think it happened to Trip. happens to everyone. Don't take shuttles and go on conferences. Especially if you are the captain of the starship that is turning the tide of your war. Yeah, that is also weird. But... There's probably a reason. I mean, it's it's probably not that weird. They probably thought they were safe. I think reasonably so, because the Starbase is obviously in Federation space. Discovery is probably at that moment in Federation space. The path between the two is probably in Federation space. So that means the Klingons went into Federation space undetected to abduct Lorca and then hightail it back to Klingon space, which means that our border defense kind of sucks. Yeah, at least in this region, especially near a very apparently very important starbase where lots of admirals are at. Right. Oh my gosh. Ridiculous. <laughs> uh, the, the shuttlecraft announces that a D7 battlecruiser has just warped in, and we zoom out, and it does not look like a battlecruiser that we've ever seen in Star Trek before. The Klingons have some new ships in their fleet. Yeah, well, this is me talking on a general Trek sense. Like, this does not match the TOS battlecru- D7 battlecruisers that we're used to, so either... They just updated the model for a new series, which is very possible, or the computer got it wrong. I don't think it was the computer that got it wrong. And by the way, I find the computer sounds a lot like Siri. You think so? Maybe not perhaps in tone, but in inflection and the sort of artificial sense of it. Yeah, yeah. I think they're going more for the TOS computer that was closer to the, as I mentioned before, the very robotic sounding computers. It was very mechanical. Yeah. So I think it's an allusion to that without going right to Majel Barrett in her more recent incarnations than the TOS version of Majel Barrett. But still, in the 51 years since the original series, we have developed actual voice interfaces that sound fairly good. And so I would think that in four times that amount of time, 200 years, we would get that much better. And yet, 200 years from now, our computers still sound as artificial as Siri. Yeah, unfortunately, well, two things. This part's not, unfortunately. They tried to keep with Trek Sense, just like Enterprise had a number of things that were, like, we've had all this great technology, even in the last 50 years. How come you don't have it? Right. But uh, also, unfortunately, despite how much I tell myself this, Star Trek future is not our future. It's a very similar universe. Right. If it was our future, we would have already had the eugenics wars by now. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Everything we have just described... Is the cold open. All of that is before the title sequence for the episode. It was about seven and a half minutes in. I was like, wow. And that is similar to the previous week's episode, in fact. They tend to do a lot before we even get to the title sequence. Yeah. So that's cool. I mean, hey. I remember the cold open for the TNG episode, Cause and Effect, was like maybe 30 seconds long because it starts with the 1701D exploding. And in fact, I was watching it on tape and I went to my dad and I said, you missed the first half of the show. You recorded it (laughs) mid-episode. He said, no, no, that's how it opens. And it was only like 30 seconds long. Wow. Yeah, usually those first 30 seconds to two minutes are to set up the premise of the episode, and then we go. And here we're just like, let's just start the show. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we could have had just Burnham's dream, and then Lorca's first meeting with the admirals, and that would have been 
quantity wise enough for the open we didn't need to have the doctor in the trophy room burnham and tilly having lunch Lorca and cornwell Lorca's abduction but they crammed out all that in so it's it's really a very different take from previous star trek and i don't know that they could get away with this on network television yeah i don't know i don't know but since they're playing by their own rules on cbs all access they can do whatever the heck they want <laughs> such language i know right you never hear that on network television <laughs> So after the title sequence, we see Saru being promoted to acting captain, and he issues commands like a boss. Yeah, he is like, nope, I've got this under control. We don't observe a moment's hesitation. He knows exactly what to do and who is supposed to do it. And he really seems cut out for command, at least in that respect. Yeah, no, I, I like seeing this part of Sar- Saru, because a lot of times he's seen, like, even in the pilot, he seemed kind of nervous. I mean, it could be inexperienced, too. Now, I don't want to say necessarily nervous, but... Cautious? Yes. And here we see him just getting into action real quick. Yeah, he always seemed ready to run from battle, but here he is very eager to plunge into Klingon territory and rescue his captain. Just like he promised Burnham, he is going to do a better job protecting his captain than Burnham did hers. Yeah, that was... Um, I, I wrote that in my notes. I think that uh, this is a really important to him. It's like, I'm first officer, this is what I do, I protect my captain. And we are going to get him. But However, he still has some concerns. He goes into his ready room and he confronts Burnham and says, you need to not worry about the tardigrade right now. Our mission is to get back Lorca. So, uh, it's an, I think it's an important conversation because we get to see a little bit of why Saru is ha- at odds with Burnham. Uh, she says, like, tardigrade is, is damaging, it's getting hurt. And he snaps back kind of in this kind of, I was told it was virtually indestructible. At this point, he's using her own words against her. And saying, you know, like, you told me this, and now all of a sudden you're telling me that. And after a bit more dialogue, she comes back and says, uh, the more you hurt someone, the less helpful they become. And she's talking about the tardigrade, but I also think she's talking about what she's done to Saru. Oh, I wasn't sure if she was talking about somebody else or she was talking about herself. Oh, I think it's also possibly how she feels against Saru, but I think it's intended to be she keeps hurting him. That's unfortunate. But when Saru's alone, he asks the computer, lists the most highly decorated Starfleet officers, both deceased and living. Yeah, we got some awesome, awesome little bit of nod to Trekkies here. Yeah, because we recognize every single name that the computer then displays on the screen. Yes. Robert April, who was the original uh, name for Captain Kirk, and he was later added to the animated series. And we get Jonathan Archer, who was from Enterprise. Then we get Matthew Decker, who was from our original series. He was Commodore Decker. In the episode where um, we get the, the Planet Eater. And we get Philippa Georgiou and Christopher Pike, who was the captain of the Enterprise in the pilot. Yeah, in the original TOS pilot, The Cage, and then later retconned into The Menagerie. Yeah. This is interesting for a couple different reasons. One is it reminds us that Christopher Pike is a decorated captain even at this point in the timeline. It really hadn't occurred to me that even though this is 10 years before Kirk, the Enterprise is still out there. Like, Spock might yeah. be a first officer right now. Yeah, uh, I don't. Uh, is it Robert April right now, or would it be Captain Pike who's running the Enterprise right now? Because it's usually five-year missions. Oh, that's true. I'm not sure how long Pike was captain of the Enterprise, but he is. Maybe he's not at the Enterprise, but he is a decorated captain already. Yeah, yeah. So, like, it's kind of neat to think that somewhere out there, the Enterprise is fighting the battle. And this also makes twice in three episodes that Discovery has alluded to the animated series. Yeah, which is great. A lot of people, all these years, the animated series has not been regarded as canon, but the movies 
and Discovery have made references to it, basically making it, effectively making it canon. Right. It's not canon until another show references it, and Enterprise did a lot of that as well. Yeah. So yay! <laughs> and the reason he brought up that list of captains is because he wants to create an evaluation program to determine whether or not he is being effective as a captain. Yeah, he asks the computer for some common traits between them all, and she talks about bravery and self-sacrifice and compassion. I think that last one's important later. Yes, that's true. And he wants the computer to make marks and grade him, basically, on how he's doing. Which is interesting, because the, one of the reasons Kirk was such an effective captain is because he often broke the rules. Yeah, but, you know, maybe we don't see, always see that in the logs after the fact. Right, but I don't know that you can create a program to evaluate who or what makes an effective captain. If you did, you wouldn't, oh. you know, there'd just be a program to promote people. Oh, I agree. I agree. I think this is Saru being his scientific self trying to evaluate somehow. Right. And speaking of captains, we then skip over to our previous captain of the Discovery, Captain Lorca, who we see is being held in a Klingon prison ship with a couple of other prisoners as well, including a name and face that may be familiar to original series fans, Harcourt Fenton Mudd. So we finally get to see him. Yeah, we've known since the previews for the entire series this summer that he would be somewhere in Discovery. Finally, he makes himself known. He's played here by Rain Wilson, formerly of Steve Carell's The Office. Oh, I didn't watch the show. Yeah, me neither. So I don't know if this is actually a departure for him. I presume it is, since The Office was a comedy, but... People who watch The Office might be surprised to see him here. Yeah, so Mud in the original series was basically a laughable, harmless con man who was always trading in women, basically. He was trying to get women to be sold off as wives with their permission, and then he tried making fembots, basically. He was the only <laughs> villain to appear in two episodes of the original series. He was the only recurring villain. It wasn't one of the Klingons? Core? I think he may have showed up in other series, but I think as far as the run of TOS goes, he only showed up once. All right. All right. So this guy, he seems a little bit more malicious than we saw on the original series. Like, this guy is an actual threat. Yeah, I would have thought that too. Actually, I just rewatched those episodes before we started watching Discovery, and like, he's actually pretty underhanded. And he was going to, he, he was kidnapping the Enterprise and basically replacing the crew with fembots and manbots it's like he's, he's kind of devious he's more evil than i think people realize i confess i only saw or rewatched the first episode of him on tos where he's just trying to sell women as wives and I, I don't think he ever actually put the enterprise or its crew in danger in that episode he was a pain in the butt to be sure but i think his representation in discovery is a little darker i could see that i could see that or get some background information into him just to briefly summarize these couple of scenes, the Klingons come in and they point at the humans and they say, choose your pain. And basically, as long as there's an odd number of prisoners, which there are, there's Lorca, Mud, and some unconscious Starfleet officer, they collectively vote amongst themselves who will receive punishment that day, physical, corporal punishment. And so they choose the unconscious guy because he can't vote if he's unconscious. And the Klingons basically stomp him on the neck and snap him and kill him. Yeah. I was like, oof. Before Lorca even gets to meet him or talk to him, because Mud says, like, yeah, he's a little, uh... <laughs> well, what, what is the word he used? Out to lunch. Out to lunch, that's it. <laughs> and uh, another prisoner shows up. He actually was hiding in the back, so he casts an absentee ballot. And he is a Starfleet officer as well, but he's a little bit more conscious. He's been there for several months, seemingly, since he was captured 
at a battle with the Klingons. He was at the battle with binary stars. Oh, he was? Yep, he was from the Jaeger. I mentioned, uh, Lorca goes, you were at the battle of the binary. He's like, they named it? Oh, I didn't realize that that was the name of the, ep- the battle that they mentioned in the show. I missed it. Yeah. I didn't realize the Klingons had taken prisoners there either. Apparently they did, because, uh, yeah. And I mentioned that was seven months ago. So, yeah, that kind of fits with the three-week timeline after jumping six months ahead. Okay. Yeah, and the only reason he is fairly not abused is because the female captain of the Klingon ship has taken a liking to him, which is disgusting. (laughs) Not because it's interracial, but just because to do that to anybody is disgusting. To take a liking to someone? In that way? (laughs) Especially when they're your prisoner? Yes. No, no, it's a very nasty situation. I mean, you know, if somebody out in the real world were to take a liking to me, that would be fine. If they then cage me for months, not fine. There's a Yeah, no. I know it might be hard for you to see, Sabriel, but there's a fine line between those two. <laughs> Mud says that a lot of this war is Starfleet's fault. They may not have started the war, but with their to boldly go where no one has gone before philosophy, it was inevitable that they would encroach upon other people's territory. And I thought that statement was really interesting for two reasons. One, I think it's the first time we have heard in an episode, as opposed to the opening sequence, somebody actually say the phrase, to boldly go where no one has gone before. You're right, you're right, I think. You're right. It reminds me of Star Trek First Contact, when Zephyr Cochran said, you're all astronauts on some sort of Star Trek. <laughs> well, he said the title of the movie, best part of every movie. Yeah, we got some interesting insight into the civilian population of Star Trek, which we don't see too often. I mean, we see a little bit here and there on each series, but to this level, only Enterprise and... Discovery have really given us the impression of what the general populace feels. Yeah, Mud basically says that while you're all zipping around your starships, have you ever looked down at the people on the ground and thought about what our lives are like? And it's true that you can be in the United Federation of Planets without being in Starfleet, and for you, your life is very different from this high life of adventure and close encounters. Yeah, I, I, I like that, even if it was... Uh... A bash against the Federation. Right. I mean, it, it implies that the future isn't as flawless as we have often seen it depicted in Star Trek. As flawless as Gene Roddenberry wanted it to be. And partly that's due to the selective viewings we've gotten. There is no Star Trek show that isn't about Starfleet. True, true. What's the point? <laughs> it's, I mean, at this, to this point, it is just Star Trek itself. Right. I mean, there could be a point to such a show, and I have often lamented that Star Trek is always in the same genre. For example, you could have a bunch of Starfleet officers, and you focus on just the time they spend in 10 forward, and it would be like Friends. It could be a Star Trek comedy. (laughs) Or you could focus on Luxley and Dulmer and make it like Star Trek X-Files. Yeah. I remember when, before Enterprise was revealed, there was talk about maybe making it like a... Maybe it was after Enterprise. In that era, talking about another series and making it... More like CSI. You know, because procedurals were very popular back then. I don't know if they still are, but that's something that Star Trek could have capitalized on. Yeah. Or even after Voyager, they could have focused on the temporal police or temporal Starfleet, whatever they were called, and make it like Doctor Who. (laughs) I would have loved that. (laughs) Especially after they demonstrated the technology to insert themselves into old episodes with Trials and Tribulations on DS9. They could have done that and gone back through any episode of Star Trek they wanted. Like like uh, the Heirloom Candle episode. <laughs> no. They could go back and make it never happen. There you go. Oh my god. But but this is Discovery. Yes. Yes, Discovery. Focusing. Focusing. So on Discovery, <laughs> uh, a couple of scenes back on Discovery, the ship, 
were that Michael Burnham and Dr. Culver go to engineering to butter up Stamets. This is where we started seeing some evidence after the previous episode that there is more to Stamets and Culver's relationship than has been made apparent because Culver is saying like, oh, if you know how to handle Stamets, Burnham, please show me how because I haven't figured it out yet. And I love this. She comes in, she's like, I've got this. And she starts just buttering him up and commenting on how intelligent he is. And he sees right through it, but it still works. <laughs> right. Like Sam says, I know I'm brilliant. What do you want? <laughs> but it does work because she says, look, the tardigrade is decaying. And if we continue to abuse him, then we're going to lose him and all the hard work you've done on your own Starfleet starship navigation system. Yeah. And he's like, this is your idea. This is your fault. And at this point, she starts like stretching her jaw He's like, what's wrong with what's wrong with your John? She's like, I'm preventing the urge to set the record straight. <laughs> Meaning she was gonna punch him. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't really sure I understood that scene because I can't figure out if Stamus is a jerk or not. Last week I felt like we really got to see him when he lets his guard down, when he says, That's not fair. I wanna talk to my mushrooms. <laughs> But then he goes and treats Burnham like this, and he's just such a jerk. Well, we saw that in the very first episode, we saw him too. And he is the, he's very self important. He's one of those, it's the trope of highly intelligent person is a jerk, like Sherlock or House. Right, because they're so much smarter than other people, and they can't stand to bring themselves down to that level. Yeah, but this is the one exception where we see he does have feelings when it comes to the right person. And apparently that person is Ripper. <laughs> okay, the right, the right two creatures. Got it. Uh, <laughs> Culver and the river. And so Burnham successfully persuades Stamets to think about this. And the next thing we see of them together is Tilly, Stamets, and Burnham alone in engineering. And they're basically offering exposition as to how the spore drive works, which on one hand was sort of heavy handed, but on the other hand, much appreciated because I felt like they hadn't been explicit enough for the audience so far on how this thing worked. Yeah, I like this scene. Like, it was obvious they're just recapping what's happening, but it was also neat to see them science the heck out of things. Right, even if it didn't take them long. It's not like this was a montage of them doing a whole bunch of experiments. It was just very rapidly, here's what we know, what do we need? And the idea comes forward pretty quickly. We got rid of all the stuff that we don't need here. Like sensors. With a C. <laughs> yes, yes. Because this is where, after they have decided what they need, Tilly just <laughs> blurts out with no filter whatsoever, this is so cool. Yeah, she's like, this is so effing cool. And she's like, sorry. And Stamets turns to her and he's like, no, cadet. It is effing cool. <laughs> I love that. I mean, like, on one hand, it was CBS flaunting that they're not on network television. On the other hand, it was showing that Starfleet officers aren't all that different from humanity today, and they can actually both be excited and vulgar. Yeah, I loved it. I don't know that I need to see that kind of language regularly. I mean, we saw a little bit when Lorca was in the Klingon prison, and he found that other Starfleet officer, and this other officer says, Sh**, if you're a captain, and that was something that probably wouldn't have been said elsewhere. And it also seemed kind of unbecoming of a Starfleet officer. Unlike in the TNG episode Allegiance, where Picard is captured with three other people, one of whom is a Starfleet ensign, and they all are relatively deferential to his rank. They would never say a swear word to Captain Picard. But you know what's interesting here? We actually saw a bunch of swearing before this scene. 
but it was all in moments where it seemed to make sense, where where it was, we were in a prison. I don't remember the other one off the top of my head, but it, it seemed appropriate. All of a sudden, here we see Starfleet officers doing their Starfleet job, being in their Starfleet way, and all of a sudden they start swearing. I don't know that I need to see them using this kind of language every day when they're doing their everyday jobs. Like, they're sitting at a con, and they punch in the wrong button, and they're like, oh, it's Dang it. You know, I, I don't know that I need to hear that on an ongoing basis. But when the occasion calls for it, whether it's in action or just a really profound moment like we saw in engineering in this episode, sure, occasionally it's appropriate. Yeah. And then we go to the torture scene. Lorca is pulled out by the Klingons to be exposed to some clockwork orange-style torture. Yeah, this scene is important because it tells us who the c- captain of the Klingon ship is. We don't know her name, but she mentions that she's descended from spies. And languages are useful, particularly when it comes to those who seek the Kl- to destroy the Klingon Empire. So that means, one, uh, the Klingons think the Federation is there to destroy them. At least she thinks that. And two, uh, to call back to the last episode, to the house... Um, Mokai. Mokai, yes. Of the women who are descended from spies. And that is why this Klingon has learned English. And in fact, I don't think we see any subtitled Klingonese in this episode. They're all speaking English. Yeah, not, not one bit. Although I did notice that this female captain, maybe it's the angles we got with her profile, or maybe it's just her personally, but she, in my opinion, looks the most different from traditional TNG-era Klingons. In fact, she looks more H.R. Geiger-inspired, as if she were an actual alien with a capital A. I think so, huh? With her, with her cranial ridges, or the how large her head is in the back? Yeah, it's, it's very pronounced, like Worf's head... As like if you were to look at it from the back, the spine certainly goes up over the cranium, but the back of his head didn't bulge out. It was relatively the same shape up as far as the back of the head goes. So they really have reimagined it, and I don't know what this means for the flatheads that were created from the augment virus in Enterprise. I'll touch on that before the end here, actually. Ah, uh, okay. Fan theories. I, I don't know if I agree with. Anyway. After his torture, Lorca is thrown back into the prison room. Apparently, he hasn't revealed anything. Uh, so he was able to withstand the torture. And this is when he turns on mud because he learned from the words that the Klingon captain was using were the same words that he was using talking to mud. He figures out he must have been spied upon and he turns on mud and says, you were bugging our conversation. And this is true. He finds the microchip that was transmitting the information. He stomps on it. This is where we realize mud really is more than he seems. He's been conspiring with a wartime enemy, which is a serious offense. Yeah, it's like, uh, I could see my doing it, but uh, up to this point, we don't. We think he's a prisoner, and he's playing the part pretty well, except for the fact that he has no bruises. He mentions why, he said earlier. He says, I'm a survivor, Captain. And he may, in fact, be a prisoner. When they escape later, he wants to go with them. So I don't think he arrived on the Klingon prison ship by choice. But as long as he's there, he's going to do whatever he can to stay alive. Right, right. That's a good way to put it. And this is also where we learn some more of Lorca's backstory about his previous command. Yeah, this is the what was referenced earlier in the episode when the Admiral talks about uh, being judged poorly. Um, Mud tries telling this... Uh, Tyler, the kid, the kid who is already in here, that Lorca had abandoned his ship and let his crew to die. Lorca was like, it's not quite how it happened. I blew up my own ship when the Klingons captured it to prevent or to help keep my crew members from being tortured on Kronos. 
I'm not sure I understand the circumstances in which the captain himself would be separated from the ship and still in a position to explode it. How how could that happen? We don't... I, mean, I think it's one of those dangling threads again, but it's possible that he was on a shuttle or, or something like that. Did a remote command blow it up? Doesn't a self-destruct command often require approval from your number one? Yeah, or maybe he, t- he, may have, he may have been off the ship and told his number one to blow it up. So there's, there's a few possibilities. I think it's just... We don't know enough. Like, how did he? How did he get away? But still, to prefer to be killed rather than taken alive as a prisoner of war is not a behavior I think we've seen in previous episodes of Star Trek. We've seen Starfleet officers get captured many a time, including Picard by the Cardassians, and I don't think we've ever seen them try to kill themselves while in captivity. We did. We saw. We saw Picard kill a in first contact. He killed an ensign or someone on the ship to prevent them from being assimilated. Ah, good point. I mean, granted, that wasn't suicide, but that was a captain making a similar choice. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. Of course, Picard had some first-hand knowledge of what it's like to be captured by the Borg. I wonder if Lorca has some history with the Klingons. It's possible, besides the Battle of the Binaries. (laughs) Right. Was he there? Oh, that... No, no, excuse me. Uh, He lost his ship a month after that. Right. So the Klingon War had already started when he lost the USS Buran. Before he and the other Starfleet officer are able to escape from the Klingon prison, we briefly cut back to Discovery, where Saru storms into engineering, and oh, God, is he pissed. Can I say pissed? (laughs) Yes, you can. All right. And maybe not in England, but in UK or in America, you can. <laughs> well, fortunately, this is a North American podcast. People don't listen to it all over the world, do they? Is that, is that how the internet works? I don't know. The internet's like a very small place, right? <laughs> right. Just Fargo and Boston, and that's it. <laughs> so Sardar comes in. As he said, he storms in. He's, he's like, why why in Tarnation did you turn off the spore drive? And <laughs> we, we were about to jump. Yeah, sorry. No, it's like Yosemite Saru. I love it. (laughs) He comes in twirling his big red mustache. You varmints, what are you doing in here? (laughs) Well, he comes in. He wants to know what's up. Burnham. It's like, but, but here's our science reason. And he's listening closely. And then he's like, kind of like comes to a sense. like, no, I gave you an order. They have this actual another moment where Burnham's like, I know you're upset. I know your culture prepares you to be on the lookout for enemies after all this fighting. She's like, I am not your enemy. And he comes back and snaps like, I am not one of your, or how dare you treat me like one of your xenobiology experiments. He's like, you are not my enemy, Burnham, but you are a proven predator. I know this from not only instincts, but your actions previously. Yeah, he is barely holding himself together. If he were a more violent person, I wouldn't be surprised to see him just backhand burn him. He is so angry. Yeah. He's like, this kind of attitude of you undermining my orders is what got Captain Zhao killed. Oh, and that is a low blow. And you can see that Burnham really sort of withers under that statement. Yeah. So yeah, this is a very different Saru from who we saw in the Shenzhou. He is no longer running from conflict. He is facing it head on when it comes to Burnham. Yeah, so good on him for getting that backbone. But ouch. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Uh, We see some more conflict back on the Klingon ship where... Lorca and did we get we got his name but I forget the other Starfleet guy. Uh, oh, it it is um Tyler Nash Tyler. Nash Tyler, Lieutenant Nash Tyler. Isn't he a country singer? <laughs> as as uh, Johnny Cash or Nash Bridges? Or... That's why he is so beloved by the Klingon captain. Where she pulls him out of the prison ship, brings him into his bedroom. He whips out his guitar <laughs> and it? just serenades her all night. <laughs> I knew uh, it. Allusions to it. Yeah. Um. 
But anyway, so so they they escape from the prison cell. They purposely lock Mud back in, even though he is presumably a member of the United Federation of Planets. They leave him behind. Yeah, well, he lived under there. Yeah, he's a citizen of the UFP, maybe. But yeah, they left him behind. Ugh. That's that's a tough call. I mean, I don't know that I would have done differently because since he is conspiring with the enemy, he and if he was brought back, he'd be tried as a traitor. But better to keep your enemies closer, I think. Yeah, and I suppose we also don't know if Lorca. I mean, Lorca doesn't know that if this guy is actually a plant or if he is a prisoner. He could be a vegetable. <laughs> or that, yes. <laughs> or maybe a mineral. They haven't really gone through the whole twenty questions yet, so it's hard to say. <laughs> And during this prison break scene. Yeah, and this was a cool action sequence, not really too substantial. I mean, Lorca briefly leaves the country singer behind, and at that moment, the Klingon captain comes in and says, where's my serenade? I want my guitar. And she attacks him, <laughs> and they fight, and Lorca shows back up and shoots her along the side of the head and saves oh God, Nash Tyler, Klingon. and they rush off to the Grand Ole Opry. The Klingon blasters! The disruptors! We got to see them in action here, and they... In in other series, when you shot with them, their body kind of slowly disintegrates as they go in pain. Here, they just yeah, like little a splat on the wall, little poof of green gas, and they're gone with no yeah. remains. No, it was like wow. <laughs> like the normal remains part is normal for Klingon disruptors, but the splat was <laughs> <laughs> wow. I like that sound effect. We should save that for a future episode. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. And during the prison break, um, Discovery, the tardigrade, collapses. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So I'm I'm sorry. I for, somehow forgot about that. When they warped to where they suspected Lork was being held. And they had multiple choices. And one of those, as you probably saw on the map, was Rora Penthe. Yes, it was. And I tried thinking the Six and Enterprise both had scenes there. That's right. That's right. So that is a well-known place in Klingon lore. But when the Discovery warped into this Klingon space, the tardigrade basically ejected all water from its body and became a shriveled husk, which is sort of its defensive mode. At first, I thought it had died, but it hadn't. And and Saru basically tells Stamets and Culver, rehydrate it and put it back to work. Yeah, he was like not taking any crap at all. He was like, nope, you just get this thing working. I don't care what it takes. Even if Ripper is sentient, Saru says, I will take responsibility for my actions if that's the case. Yeah. It's like, wow, he is taking this uh, protecting his captain thing very seriously. And we also learned the crew complement on the Discovery is 135 people, including the captain. So yeah, that is significantly smaller than a Galaxy-class starship like Picard Captain. Yeah. Which is good, because they're at war. And as he has said, this is now a warship, and you don't want families it's running true. around on a warship. Yeah. So uh, so during that prison break scene, where Nash Tyler is confronted by the Klingon captain, his uh, force lover, we assume, the way they talk, and he... When he gets a chance, he just starts beating the crap out of her after what she has done to him. I'm sure that was very cathartic. Yeah, I'm thinking it was some kind of catharsis move. And then or Lorca comes, takes care of things. They run and get a, get a Klingon raider and escape. I've never seen a Klingon raider like that before. No, it looked like little flowers or birds. Like a peacock flying around through his face. Yeah, it was very alien and very small. It kind of reminded me of the prison break in The Force Awakens. When they fly off of the little TIE fighter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just in the fact that they capture an, a very small enemy ship, and they're flying away and being pursued by enemy ships. But we don't get the little bro moment that, that happened in uh, Force Awakens. Sadly not. But, <laughs> but there's always, you know, we're only a few months out from The Last Jedi, so we can follow that up then. True. But this little scene in the Raider kind of shows us that Lorca knows how to fly them. 
because he yells out, increase power to the shields. And then Nash has a split second of what? And, and Lurka says, the blue panel on the right. Oh, I missed that. That means that he's well-versed in Klingon technology, more so than his co-pilot here. Yeah. I don't know if that's because Garth Brooks has been in prison longer <laughs> for the more of the course of the battle, while Lorca's been on the front lines learning about this stuff. I don't know, but I, I, I'm not sure. Also, in my notes, I don't remember if there was any dialogue about it, but it's revealed that the I Oh, no. The, um, Nash asks, did the eye accident happen on the Baran? And Lorca says he basically, he keeps it to remember. That's why he hasn't fixed his eyes, because he's chosen it to remember how he lost his crew. Yes. And as they're flying back to the Discovery... Discovery, captained by Saru, Saru notices the predator-prey formations of the one raider being chased by the other raiders. Because there's a real possibility here that Discovery could misidentify them by the ship and not who's captaining it, and just shoot down all the raiders and kill their own captain. Yeah, we see either Saru's instincts of his people, or just his wherewithal not understanding how predator and prey works. That was kind of a neat scene. Yeah, it was nice to see that taxonomy from his homeworld actually come into play on the battlefield. So they very quickly beam Lorca and Diamond Rio back onto the Discovery, <laughs> and they're safe. And Saru calls down to engineering, has the tardigrade been revived? Can we get out of here? Stamets sort of avoids the question and says, we're ready to jump. Yeah, yeah, this is just, just somewhere in this whole mess, this whole scene, Saru's like, do the thing that you need to do about the tardigrade, or getting us to jump, and Stamets is like, okay, we'll do it. And then this whole stuff happens, and then they beam the captain aboard. Captain's like, jump, 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 get us out of here. And they do that. And they get out safely. And then Saru messages down to engineering like, Stamets, good job. Stamets? Stamets, where are you? How come you're not answering? And they notice that his life signs are very low. So they all rush down to engineering. You can see coming through the door, both Saru and Tilly, as well as some other people. And they find that Stamets is in the spore chamber where the tardigrade usually goes and he has puncture wounds where he has interfaced with the navigation system. So he has injected himself with tardigrade DNA, which is forbidden as a result of the eugenics wars. That sort of human experimentation, even on a willing subject, is not permitted. And yet Stamets did it to himself and was able to power a successful jump by the discovery out of Klingon space after saving Lorca. Yeah, yeah, he finally got to experience this. Something he's wanted all his life. Which is interesting, because I wonder if Saru is going to come down as hard on him as he has on Burnham. I mean, in this scenario, Stamens is the one who violated orders. I thought it might be Burnham we see in that chamber, but she had been confined to quarters. So that dream at the beginning where she's in the sport chamber was not literal foreshadowing. I thought it might be. But then, no, we walk in at Stamets, who has defied his captain's orders and done something that he said he wouldn't do, not done the thing he said he would do. I could see Saru getting mad at Burnham for poisoning the crew, but ultimately Stamets made his own choice. It was successful, but you really can't judge a decision on the results. No, no. Stamets made a huge sacrifice here, and he didn't, he didn't know it was going to work. I think... It was very important for his character. Yeah, I didn't really know that he had that sort of an ethical code based on everything we'd seen and how he interacts with Burnham. But he apparently cares about the Tardigrade and about his work on Discovery quite a bit, enough to put himself in harm's way. And we'll learn some more motivation shortly. But still, it's a big jump he took. I think I, I like that insight into this character here. Yeah, it made him much more likable for me. Saru meets Burnham in her quarters. And there's a touching moment here. Uh, she asks him, are you afraid of me? Because his ganglia always 
poof up when she comes nearby. And he says, I'm not. I'm not. She's not afraid of her. He's angry at her and angry at how much she stole from him. And she got, she's, he's deeply jealous of the opportunity that he never got. What he's talking about is he was jealous that Burnham was able to learn under Captain Georgiou, one of the most prominent captains in Starfleet. And he lost his chance. He was expecting Burnham to go get her own ship after her time on the Shenzhou, and then he would be first officer then and get the chance to learn from her. But after the Battle of the Binaries and losing Captain, he lost that chance, and he sees you kind of had seen like Burnham is the reason for that. Yeah, it's interesting that he's not afraid of her, given how often his threat ganglia come out. But I thought this was a very articulate scene. It was very honest, and I'm surprised that he sort of was able to bring down his defensive shields long enough to have this conversation with her. I don't know if that's because Stamet sort of backed her up by choosing to save the tardigrade, and so he realizes that maybe he made a mistake if his most senior engineer supported the mutineer. The reason he did this, besides wanting to get it out, remember one of the qualities that were seen in all good captains was compassion. And this is him coming coming out here. Being compassionate with Burnham by saying how angry he is with her? Oh, well, having just real talk. I suppose. So you think he's just trying to be a better captain? Well, he's trying to be a better person. He sees other captains do this, and he's doing it too. And he gets rewarded for it. Because Burnham says, you did well today. I know Philippa would have been proud of you. And I want you to have her telescope and see the galaxy the way she did. Yeah, that was beautiful. I wasn't sure he would accept. In fact, he closes the case, picks it up. I thought he was going to hand it back to her. But apparently he was just getting ready to walk out of the room with it. So he yeah, is accepting cut away. gift. Yeah. So, yeah, we assume he takes it. So I thought that too, actually. But this feels like a violation of Georgiou's final wishes it seems disrespectful i granted when she made this wish this last will she didn't know how she was going to die she didn't know the circumstances of burnham's mutiny but nonetheless an argument could be made that she didn't want saru to have the telescope right right i think she would have been okay with that personally and we also see saru back in his room prepared to receive the computer's evaluation based on the criteria he previously defined, and he chooses not to receive that evaluation. He deletes the program. Yeah, and he's, he just says, I know what I did. What do you think he meant by that? He knows all his actions here. I think he didn't. He realized he does not need this review program to determine uh, what he needs to do. But usually when somebody says, I know what I did, to me that sounds like an admission of guilt. Oh yeah, it absolutely is. And he doesn't need the, re- the review program that he made to remind him of that. He, he has to live with it now. Well, it'll be interesting to see what impact that has on his character and his interactions with Burnham in future episodes, whether or not he'll continue to offer her pity blueberries. <laughs> uh, we have two more quick final scenes to cover. Uh, Tilly and Burnham are prepared to release the tardigrade. Yeah, they. Uh, it's, it's a little scene. It's uh, They put the tardigrade on a little... Uh, basically, to get it ready to launch it out into space, to give it some spores, and send it off. And Tilly says a little psalm as she does this. She says, May the sun and moon watch your comings and goings in the endless nights and days that are before you. Yeah, which I thought was interesting. I thought it was cool. They Apparently, they replaced the word God with suns and moons. And so I don't know if this is future changes to the psalm, or if this is the writer's change as a poetic moment. Or Tilly's change, or intended to be like Tilly's change to the psalm. But I thought it was a cool moment. And maybe it shows that she's religious. 
I see where they would have removed Lord or God and replaced it with suns and moons, but I think it's more than a literal translation from Psalm 121 of the Bible. For example, that line would be, The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. I mean, that, that's one translation. That's the New International Version. The exact wording, even if you remove the sun and moon part, there are no Google hits for that, except in the Star Trek context. It could be something original. There's a thread on Reddit that says it's very similar to a prayer used in Dune, which is, Bless the Maker and His water. Bless the coming and going of Him. May His passage cleanse the world. May He keep the world for His people. That's a little bit more different from what Tilly said. So yeah. you could make it. So I don't know if what she's saying is original or if it's just adapted from a biblical source or even a variety of sources. That's true. That's true. I liked it, no matter what the source. It seems unusual for Star Trek, and I'm willing to accept that this is an aspect of the future that we haven't seen yet. At least in Star Trek universe, yeah. But they let the tardigrade go. He magically rehydrates himself, perhaps from the spores, and he just sort of warps off to who knows where. Yeah. He's gone. They let him go. And then we jump to a sweet scene at the end of this episode. Yes. From one of the first times ever, we get to see a Starfleet bathroom. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going for. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've seen like sonic showers before, but here they are brushing their teeth. Yeah, Culver and Stamets are brushing their teeth, having a sweet moment as Culver is still sitting here doing diagnostics on Stamets as they're getting ready for bed together. Stamets is basically like, you don't have to worry about me. He's like, I do when you keep doing crap like this. Right, so this is where we're learning that they are apparently roommates, which we I, have not been... I don't think it's roommates, Ken. <laughs> well, I mean that in the literal sense that they share quarters. <laughs> okay, okay. Which we did not know before. And then, you know, Culver is very physically affectionate with Stamets in a way that we also haven't seen before. And I apologize if I sort of ruined that they're a couple by tweeting about it. I don't know if that was a spoiler. We knew there would be a gay character on Star Trek. I'm not sure even I knew that there would be a gay couple. But it's kind of cool that we're now finally seeing this because if this is where you find out about this, it makes it all the more fun to rewatch the episode, especially the scene where. Culver saying if you, to Burnham, if you know how to handle Stamets, let me know, because I haven't figured it out yeah, yet. Yeah. Like, oh, they're not just co-workers. Yep, yep. <laughs> well, this scene has two cool... I mean, besides that moment, there's a few more important moments. Stamets starts talking about the experience he's got... He, The experience of using the spore drive with himself, he finally got to reveal... Like, He finally got to experience... Sporeness and all its great sporeness across the universe, and it was just a deep moment. And he, he actually says to Culver, "You should worry." I don't know if he's just kind of playing around with him, or if he actually meant it in some, if, in some kind of context. Because next scene, they share this tender little moment. Culver walks to the back, and Stamus turns to the mirror and smiles, and he walks away. And then the reflection smiles, and then walks away separately. Yeah, there's a delay between the reflection and the original. Yeah. And what do you think is meant by that? We don't know. All of a sudden it cuts away. The music the music uh, rises, raises, and then cuts away. And that was the end of the episode. I have to wonder if this is a consequence of him integrating himself with the mycelium network, if something he has done has had an unintended consequence. I don't think that's what it is, though. Uh, yeah, I don't. we don't know. There has been talk that the Mirror Universe will have a part. Right. But this might be too on the nose again. (laughs) 
I think there will be Mirror Universe episodes. I don't know how this episode relates to that, because Mirror is a metaphor. We've never actually seen Mirror Universe characters in mirrors before. This is not like the Flash's rogue Mirror Master. However, this is something that I miss. Apparently, in the promotional material for Discovery, before it ever debuted, there was a shot of Lorca sitting in the captain's chair. Yeah, Yeah. And behind him, have you seen this photo? I've seen the photo, but I don't remember anything... Interesting about it, besides that, him sitting on a chair. If you look at the Starship plaque behind him, it says the ISS Discovery. No way. Yes way. (laughs) So some people have been wondering, does Discovery violate Star Trek canon because it is in the Mirror Universe? Is that what we're watching? And the answer is no, because... The Mirror Universe doesn't have Starfleet. The Mirror Universe has the Terran Empire, where Vulcans are slaves to humans. And we have seen that this is quite clearly not the case in Discovery. However, it doesn't mean that there won't be Mirror Universe episodes, or that perhaps Starfleet has been infiltrated by the Mirror Universe. Some people think that the Captain Lorca we've been watching is from the Mirror Universe. Interesting, interesting. I guess we shall see. Curiouser and curiouser. (laughs) More Alice in Wonderland. Indeed. Uh, so there's one more hypothesis fan theory that I don't know if I hold with it. Ooh, let's hear it. That Lieutenant Nash Tyler, your country singer, is Voke. He's woke? Like he's really attuned Voke. to minority voices in the media? He's Voke, the Klingon. Wait, he's a really woke Klingon? V-O-Q. Voke. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was, I was just wondering how far I could push you. <laughs> wow, that would be... Wow. Really? Because apparently it's the same actor. What? No. I don't know. I don't know what he looks like normally. And people were saying this based on some material they knew from Star Trek before, where this character, the name, I think, matched. And I think some sources that were... Like, it was on previously. It was on even, like, Memory Alpha. And then someone went and deleted it. Oh. And things like that. So, And I think maybe even some promotional material that went out. Now, this is all fan theory. No, we don't know. But if you look at it, rewatch it, and look at it from there, it can kind of fit. Because you got this dude who no one knew was on the ship. All of a sudden, he just appears. Or on the Klingon ship. He was on the Klingon ship with the house of um, the spies. And whatnot. But it's only been three weeks since he was uh, abandoned on the Shenzhou. Right. And so, I guess we'll see. I don't think we know the actor playing Vogue. It could be the same person. But were we saying this Starfleet officer was named Nash Tyler? Yeah, it's, it's Lieutenant Nash Tyler. Because I think, according to memory alpha, it's Ash without the N. Oh, is it? Oh, which okay. is far less country western. Yeah, more Pokemon. Which means I need to go re-record this entire episode to remove <laughs> half my jokes. None of which were funny. Let's start over. Dang it. <laughs> Ash Tyler. All right. So yeah, this is really interesting. I don't know where Star Trek is going from here, because not only did we mention we don't watch the teasers for the next episode, they've moved the teaser. Did you notice that last night? No, I... Where did they move it to? At the end of the episode, it went right into the end credits, which I'd never seen before. And after that, it said, next time on Star Trek Discovery. Okay, so no, I think I didn't catch that. I I always stop it before, so I don't worry about seeing any previews. So I missed it. Ah, but yes, we can now watch the end credits spoiler-free. Okay, maybe they listen to our podcast. Yay! I'm sure that's it. (laughs) Of all the dozens of Star Trek Discovery podcasts out there, and I've counted there are dozens, they're listening to ours. 
<laughs> uh, speaking of which, there is a Star Trek Discovery unofficial fan group on Facebook where I've engaged in some thoughtful discussions. And into one of those discussions, who should jump but Anthony Rapp? No way. The actor who plays Stamets was not only conversing with other Star Trek fans in this unofficial group, he was even starting his own threads and said, hey, I saw this meme on Twitter, thought you might find it as funny as I did. (laughs) I missed that. And it turns out that he and I actually have a friend in common on Facebook, another actor that I know. (laughs) That's cool. Somebody who I went to college with and who ended up going on to Broadway, which is not surprising since Anthony Rapp was in the Broadway musical Rent. So that is the episode Choose Your Pain. We ran a little bit long, but I think that's okay. Is there anything else we want to end with before we sign off until next week? Uh, I'm just seeing like now people, now you got me hooked on this this discovery thread and like people talking about mirrors. <laughs> ah, yes. I'll try to include links to those in the show notes at transporterlock.com. But for me personally, I will stop browsing Facebook while we're talking. Um, I've got nothing I need to add more. We got, we got we kind of heard everything I wanted to talk about. But Sabriel, your massive knowledge base of Star Trek lore and history is invaluable. Yeah, it is. How can you have nothing to share? Because we've been talking for a while. <laughs> People want to do their own thing, too. <laughs> oh, no. At this rate, somebody might have to leave a review about me. <laughs> Fine, can I'll leave a review. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's great. That's been another episode of Transporter Lock, and we will be back on the air next week with the next episode of Star Trek Discovery. The titles for which have all been announced. We're not looking at them, because, again, we don't like spoilers. But as soon as we find out, we'll let you know on the next episode of Transporter Lock. This is so effing cool. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. <laughs>